As you probably know, many people in our society consider religious or biblical convictions to be hate speech. If you believe that there is right and wrong or true and false when it comes to religious beliefs, many people view you as intolerant. According to some, that is the worst thing anyone could possibly be. As a result, it is very easy for us to feel the pressure to bend or give in when it comes to what we believe or what we say about some eternally important issues. For example, it is extremely difficult to hold to the view that the Mormon gospel or the gospel of the Jehovah's Witnesses is not a saving gospel. Yet when you compare the message of salvation in those religious systems with what the Bible says about salvation, they are clearly not the same. Let me show you what I mean. Turn with me by way of introduction to Romans chapter 4. We'll spend some time in Romans before we resume our consideration of Galatians. Romans chapter 4, and look with me at verse 4, where as Paul is teaching about justification, he pens these words, Romans 4 verse 4, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Now that statement is easy enough to understand. It really needs no explanation. If you work for something, then when you get it, it's not a gift. It's not a favor to pay a man what he has earned. You worked for it, so it's owed to you. That is a basic axiom in life. As a result, that's how many people view salvation. But if you view salvation that way, then you have it all wrong. Because salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and not by works. If you think you can earn your salvation through works, then you are not a Christian. Let me put this in the form of a question or several questions to make the point. Are you a Christian? This is how you discover the answer. Have you ceased altogether to look at yourself or to yourself in every possible way. That is, are you looking only and entirely and utterly to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and what He has done on your behalf? The way you answer those questions reveals whether or not you really are a Christian. Because God's salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and it is not and cannot be earned. So Paul spells that out in the very next verse. Verse 5, he says, But, here's the contrast, to him who does not work. Now, obviously, in this context, he's not talking about someone who doesn't have a job or someone who's lazy. Or, no, he's talking about the one who does not work for his salvation. He says, But to him who does not work... But believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. 
That may be the clearest statement in all the Bible on the doctrine of justification. Or maybe a better phrase would be the doctrine of imputation. Justification is granted to the believer, not the worker. By the way, the word believes here is a present participle, which means that the emphasis is on continuous action. I point that out because it's important to realize that true saving faith is not just a one-time decision without any ongoing reality. In other words, true saving faith is not just saying a prayer at some point in your life and then it having no impact on your life or walking forward uh, for an altar call and it having no impact on your life. True saving faith is an ongoing reality because it's a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, not just a one-time decision. That is why Paul describes the Christian here as one who believes on him who justifies the ungodly. Please notice that. We don't merely believe that God justifies the ungodly. We believe on him who justifies the ungodly. And there's a huge difference between those. Believing that God justifies the ungodly is mere mental assent to facts. Believing on him who justifies the ungodly is saving faith. So what is faith? Allow me to quote Lenski at this point. He says it so well, and I quote, he says, We must note the biblical concept of faith. It is the hand and the heart filled with Christ. It is not mere believing, but the possession of Christ. Stated it this way, God reckons the possession of Christ by faith for righteousness. This helps to show why the scripture, Scriptures rate faith so highly. It is not because of faith as an act, but because of the contents of God-accomplished faith. End quote. In other words, faith in and of itself doesn't save. Christ saves. And that's important to emphasize in our day because you often hear people use this expression. They will say, well, I'm a man of faith, or she's a woman of faith, or such and such is a person of faith. That means nothing. What are we talking about? What kind of faith? Faith in whom? Faith in what? Faith in and of itself doesn't save. Christ saves. Faith is the means or the channel by which God grants justification. It is the possession of Christ by faith that God credits as righteousness. That's justification. Please notice from this verse, those whom God justifies. This is so important. So important. God justifies the ungodly. So many people think that the way to be saved is to be good. So many people think that the way to obtain righteousness before God is by trying to be righteous. But the fact of the matter is, the way to be saved is to confess and acknowledge and come to grips with the fact that you are bad. Until a person comes to see himself as ungodly, that person is not ready for salvation. A person can never be saved until he admits he is lost. That is why Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
There's a little bit of sarcasm or irony in that statement because, as you well know, no one is righteous and all of us are sinners. So why would Jesus say, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners? His point was, unless you recognize you are a sinner, my salvation will do you no good. That's what Jesus was saying. Those who are righteous in their own eyes have no part in God's redemptive work of grace. If you refuse to swallow your pride and humble yourself by admitting that you are unrighteous and ungodly, then you will never experience the saving grace of God because, according to this verse and many others, God only justifies the ungodly. After all, there aren't any godly people for him to justify. So God declares us righteous. That's what justification means. That's what imputation means. He imputes righteousness to us. He declares us righteous even though we are actually ungodly. He doesn't declare us godly because we aren't godly. But he does declare us righteous. How can God do that? This sounds so strange. If we are ungodly, and even after justification we're ungodly according to this verse... Why in the world, on what basis, does God declare us righteous? He can do that because of the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why verse 24 of chapter 3 says God does this through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word redemption basically means payment. Jesus Christ paid our debt, and on that basis, God can and does justify those who place faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So God doesn't just regard us as righteous without any basis, because that would be lying. I mean, think about it this way. If God said, Bill, Tom, Bob, whoever, he is, he is, he is not righteous, but I'll say he is righteous. That would be a lie. God doesn't do that. God imputes the righteousness of Jesus Christ to us. And because he has done that, he can declare us legally righteous before him. But please notice from this verse, read it carefully. Please notice that when God justifies us, we are actually ungodly. Legally, we are righteous before God, but our character is ungodly. So justification is not a change accomplished by God in us. It is a change of our relation to and standing with God. Let me use an illustration. <clears throat> Let's say that someone has been tried for the crime of robbery. This man has committed dozens of robberies, white-collar crimes, identity theft, credit card theft. This has gone on over many years and the amount that he has stolen is in the billions. During the trial against the man, he's, he's caught, brought to trial. During the trial, the evidence is overwhelming and conclusive. The man is undoubtedly guilty. He is guilty of dozens of counts of robbery, and he owes now billions of dollars to his victims. So the judge hears all the evidence, declares the man guilty, and in addition to his punishment of a $90 million fine, the judge orders the man to pay back the money to his victims. Well, the, the, the man doesn't have any of the money left because he squandered it all. Then someone steps forward to the bench and writes out a check 
to pay the $90 million fine and the billions of dollars owed to all the victims. The judge accepts the payment from the substitute, and at that point the criminal is declared innocent in the eyes of the court. Is he really innocent? Be careful how you answer that. Legally, he is innocent. In the eyes of the court, he's declared righteous, although he hasn't changed one bit as a person. Beloved, that's the way it is with justification. We are guilty. We are as guilty as can be before God, but God declares us righteous in his eyes because someone else has paid our debt. That someone else was Christ Jesus. So you see, justification, please hear this, justification doesn't change us. It doesn't change who we are or what we are like. We are still the same sinful person we always were, but justification changes our legal standing in the eyes of God. Now let me hasten to add that those whom God justifies, He also regenerates and sanctifies to actually make us righteous. But, but, justification in and of itself is not God making us righteous. It is God declaring us righteous. Now we know from other passages that those whom God justifies, He also regenerates and sanctifies. So God declares us righteous legally by justification. But he doesn't stop there. He also gives us new life in Christ and begins to make us actually righteous through his work of sanctification. But Paul is not interested in developing the doctrines of of regeneration or sanctification at this point in the letter to the Romans. His concern in chapter 4 is that we understand the doctrine of justification, imputation, legal righteousness. Sadly enough, many people do not understand this doctrine. For example, the official position of the Roman Catholic Church on this subject goes directly against what Paul is saying here. It is diametrically opposed. It teaches that by our baptism, we are made righteous and godly. Righteousness is infused into us, injected into us, or put into us. And because we have been made righteous by our baptism, then we are justified. But that is to say that we are justified because we are sanctified, which is the exact opposite of what Paul is saying here in Romans 4. Paul is teaching, please hear this, Paul is teaching that we are justified while we are still ungodly. So verses 4 and 5 delineate for us the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and it is completely different than the gospel of Mormonism or the Jehovah's Witnesses, as well as many other religious groups. Yet it's difficult to say that today because you are accused of hate speech or intolerance or of being narrow-minded or being unloving or being divisive. Skip over to chapter 10 of Romans, where Paul says something similar. Chapter 10, verse 1, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, 
but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. In the closing verses of chapter 9, Paul stated an astounding irony. Many Gentiles who were previously unconcerned about righteousness have become righteous before God by faith. But most Jews who were previously consumed with trying to be righteous before God have completely missed it. Why? Because, Paul says here, they did not seek it by faith, but rather by works. It was their pride in themselves and in their own ability that caused them to refuse to believe the simple gospel message. As Paul says in verse 2, I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. This verse strikes a lethal blow to the popular view of our day that says it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. That is hogwash. The Bible nowhere would support that idea. The Jews were very sincere in their religion, very zealous in their religion. In Paul's day, they were known as the God-intoxicated people, but their zeal was misguided. They were sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. They had zeal, but it was not according to knowledge. Verse 3 says this. He says, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. This was a willful refusal to submit to God's plan of righteousness, which is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which is exactly what many religions do today and even many churches under the umbrella of Christendom. They will not submit to God's plan of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and instead they establish their own righteousness. They establish a system of righteousness through the sacraments, or through penance, or through confession, or through good works. But as the last phrase of this verse says, they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. God's plan of righteousness is not through any of those things. God's plan of righteousness is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But it's not easy to say that today because when you do, you are accused of hate speech or intolerance or being narrow-minded or being unloving or being divisive. The Apostle Paul completely understood all those kinds of accusations. Paul completely understood all that kind of pressure. But when it came to the purity of the gospel, he would not compromise because he realized that the ramifications are eternal. They are eternal. And that's why he wrote the letter called Galatians. Let's turn together to the second chapter of that letter, Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, please follow along as I read verses 1 through 14, though we'll focus on 11 through 14. But to get the context, let's begin in verse 1. <coughs> 
Paul says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who are of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek or a Gentile, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage for whom we did not or to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows no personal favoritism or God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed, for before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? Paul wrote this letter because the Galatians were getting confused regarding the purity of the gospel. They had heard the gospel from Paul, the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and they seemed to have embraced it. Then a group of teachers called the Judaizers came along and told them that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ, but it's not only by grace through faith in Christ. The Judaizers taught that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ, Plus, obeying the commands of the Old Testament, and especially, if you're a male, especially the command of circumcision. And the Galatians were beginning to be swayed by that message. It sounded so spiritual. It sounded so convincing. I mean, who can argue with the importance of obedience? Who can deny the fact that God gave circumcision as a sign of his covenant with Abraham and his people? How many passages are there in the Old Testament that emphasize the Ten Commandments and emphasize circumcision? There are literally dozens and dozens and dozens. So the Galatians were beginning to be pulled into this belief that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ plus the Old Testament law and circumcision. In order to convince the Galatians of this viewpoint, The Judaizers were evidently criticizing Paul and accusing him of making up a soft gospel message. I can just hear them. Oh, Paul, in his 
salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's so easy. He doesn't want to make you work for it at all. He wants to pull out obedience to the Old Testament law. So they accused Paul of making up a soft gospel message. They probably said that he wasn't even really an apostle because he wasn't a member of the original 12. To counter all of these accusations, Paul wrote an extensive autobiographical section in the first couple chapters of this letter. He defends his apostleship and he defends his message. He repeatedly asserts that he received the gospel that he preached directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't receive it from man. He wasn't taught it by man. He didn't even receive it from an angel. He received it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In fact, he explains here in this autobiographical section that he only went to Jerusalem, which was the headquarters of Christianity at first. He only went there twice during the first 14 years of his Christian life. And when he did go there, he didn't go there to be instructed or commissioned by the spiritual leaders in the Jerusalem church. He says in verse 6 that the key spiritual leaders in Jerusalem, that would be James, our Lord's half-brother, Peter and John, two of the original twelve, he says those men added nothing to his message or his ministry. Those prominent leaders in Jerusalem didn't add anything to his understanding of the gospel because, as he said earlier, he received his gospel directly from Jesus Christ. So why would he need to have it supplemented by anyone, even prominent apostles in Jerusalem? He didn't need to have it supplemented, and he didn't need to have any clarification. The other apostles, as much as he appreciated them and respected them, didn't add anything to his understanding of the gospel. Now, Paul isn't bragging when he says this. He is simply affirming that his gospel message was the same message as that of James, Peter, and John, because there's only one gospel that saves, and that is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. He was also saying that his commissioning wasn't less than Peter's. Peter was the apostle to the Jews. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul's apostleship wasn't inferior to Peter's, and Paul illustrates that fact in verses 11 through 14, by telling about an occasion when he actually had to correct Peter publicly for the way Peter's actions were sending a mixed message. Notice how he describes it, beginning in verse 11. He says, Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. The Antioch mentioned here in this verse was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, behind Rome and Alexandria, and it was the city where the first Gentile church took root, the first non-Jewish church. It eventually became the launching pad for Paul's missionary journeys as he was sent out by that church. When Peter was there on one occasion, Paul knew that he had to address a major problem or inconsistency in Peter's life. Now, no one in his right mind likes confrontation. No one in his right mind enjoys confrontation, but this was a necessary confrontation. Why? We are told why in the next verse. Verse 12, 
He says, for, let me explain this, before certain men came from James, now this would be the Lord's half-brother, key leader in the Jerusalem church, the mother church, all Jewish church. So he says, before certain men came from James, he, that is Peter, would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision, which is another way of just saying, fearing those who were Jewish. So what is this verse saying? It is saying this, the apostle Peter would regularly eat with the Gentile Christians because he knew that the dietary laws of the Old Testament were no longer an issue. He didn't have to worry about eating something that wasn't kosher because we are now under the new covenant, not the old covenant. But, but when Jewish people came from James, who was one of the key leaders in the Jerusalem Jewish church, Peter withdrew from the Gentiles because he was concerned that the Jewish people would not approve of him eating with Gentiles. The problem was this action sent a very confusing message. Now think about this. When Peter withdrew and stopped eating with Gentiles, when these Jews came on the scene, it sent the message that the Old Testament dietary laws were still an issue, were still in force, and something that had to be followed. In other words, let me say it another way. Peter's actions sent the message that salvation isn't by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. His actions implied you have to keep the Old Testament law to be accepted by God. That is why this was so serious. That's why this was a necessary confrontation. So in verse 13, Paul says this, And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. All the other Jewish believers in Antioch followed Peter's example and withdrew from the Gentiles when these Jewish men came from Jerusalem to spend time in Antioch. And Paul says here that even Barnabas went along with them. Barnabas was given the name Barnabas, even though his name was actually Joseph. He was given the name Barnabas because the name means encourager, basically means encourager, and he was such a tremendous encourager. Yet, even he went along with the other Jews, Peter and the others, who withdrew from the Gentiles when the Jews came from James in Jerusalem. And notice that Paul refers to their action as hypocrisy. It is hypocritical to say that you believe salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But then you refuse to eat with Gentile Christians who don't follow the Old Testament dietary laws. That's hypocrisy. Your words are saying one thing, your actions are saying another thing. It is sending a mixed message and it actually undermines the gospel, which is why Paul was so disturbed by the actions of all those who did that. He explains that in the next verse. He says in verse 14, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles, that is, you've been living as a Gentile, you've been eating this food that was not kosher under the Old Testament dietary laws, and there's no problem with that, but you were living like that. If that's the way you were living, 
He says, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? That is, why did you change and send the message that Gentiles have to live as Jews? Now that had to be quite a scene. I'm not suggesting that Paul was trying to make a scene, but he's, he was definitely trying to make a point. Paul confronted Peter publicly. Peter was the apostle to the Jews, and as such, he carried a lot of weight. Peter was the leader of the twelve. Jesus was their rabbi, their teacher, their master, but Peter was the leader. Matthew 10.2, as well as other verses, make that clear. His influence cannot be overestimated. So when his actions were blurring an accurate understanding of the gospel, Paul felt compelled to address him publicly. He asked Peter, listen Peter, if you were living as a Gentile, by eating Gentile food before the Jews came from Jerusalem, then why did you change and give the impression the Gentiles have to live as Jews to be pleasing to God. Do you see how Peter's action distorted the truth of the gospel? Because it was saying, hey, it's not enough just to have faith in Christ. If you want to really be accepted by God, you have to follow the Old Testament dietary laws. Peter's actions distorted the truth of the gospel. If Peter was the first pope, he sure wasn't an, an, an infallible one. Of course, Peter wasn't the first pope, and he was a sinner just like every one of us. And here, his actions distorted the truth of the gospel. The gospel is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and you don't need anything else. You don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to obey the Old Testament laws, including the dietary laws. But Peter's actions implied that if you are a Gentile... You need to live as a Jew by obeying the Old Testament laws to be accepted by God. In other words, let me just say it bluntly. His actions were basically saying, you need to earn your salvation through obedience to these Old Testament laws. Or at least you need to contribute to your salvation in some way. Or you need to do something to get it or seal it or help it along. That distortion has eternal consequences in people's lives. Which is why Paul knew he had to address this to Peter, and he had to address it before all the others, publicly. Why has Paul relayed this incident? Did he tell us about this to brag? No. Did he tell, tell about this to make Peter look bad? No, absolutely not. He appreciated it. And respected Peter. Did he tell this story to exalt himself? Absolutely not. He told this story to illustrate the fact that his apostleship wasn't inferior to Peter's, and his commissioning wasn't inferior to Peter's, and his message wasn't any different than Peter's, which is why, please hear this, which is why Peter accepted this rebuke. Paul felt comfortable recording this in a letter that was going to be read throughout the first century because Peter wasn't defensive about his actions. Peter accepted this rebuke. Peter realized he was doing wrong by sending such a, six, a mixed message. Both apostles proclaimed the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
But Peter's actions on this occasion were not consistent with the message. Peter's actions undermined that gospel message by implying you need more than faith in Christ to be accepted before God. You need to keep the Old Testament laws. And beloved, that is a message that cannot go unaddressed. No matter how unpopular it is, and no matter what we are called, unloving, divisive, intolerant, narrow-minded, we cannot compromise the purity of the gospel. We cannot. We cannot compromise the purity of the gospel, even if it means publicly stating that certain groups are wrong, or certain churches are wrong, or certain high-profile spiritual leaders are wrong. We cannot compromise because people's eternal destiny is at stake. When high-profile people, even respected Christian leaders like Peter, say things and do things that distort the purity of the gospel by stating or implying that the gospel message of all religions or all churches is basically the same, that is too serious to ignore. It's not all the same. Every gospel that is proclaimed in the name of religion is not the same gospel. Standing for the truth of the gospel is more important than not being called unloving or not being called divisive or not being called intolerant or narrow-minded. I agree that we need to be as gracious as possible, but that doesn't guarantee that others, even Christians, won't accuse us of hate speech. It's the price we have to pay in our day and age for believing what God says and taking his definition of the gospel seriously. It is the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, plus nothing. Absolutely nothing. Let's bow together as we close. Have you embraced that gospel message? Have you embraced the truth of the gospel by embracing Jesus Christ? Christ saves in Christ alone. No human effort, no religion, no good deeds. Christ and Christ alone. Are you trusting in him and him alone for salvation? Or are you trusting in something in yourself or in religion? The implications are eternal. Let go of anything else, everything else, and trust Christ and Christ alone. And I would say to those here who have trusted Christ, do you see the seriousness of not compromising on the purity of the gospel? I know it's difficult in our day and age. I know it's unpopular. I know we we feel the pressure, the heat to, to compromise, but we cannot compromise. We cannot compromise the purity of the gospel because the implications are eternal. And so hold fast. Hold strong to the purity of the gospel, regardless of how unpopular in our day. And Father, we would pray about these two things in closing this morning.
We pray for anyone hearing these words who is trusting in anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. May they hear the gospel and embrace Jesus Christ and Christ alone. And we pray for those who have embraced the gospel but feel the pressure, feel the criticism from our society and maybe even from other Christians to not be so unyielding on the purity of the gospel. May we never, ever bend to that pressure, but always graciously, uncompromisingly hold to the truth of the gospel because we understand that the implications are eternal. So we pray these things together in the matchless name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.